This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Conversation alive and well. And a chat today with a lady who brings intelligence, vitality, and enthusiasm for life. Dory Clark is one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world, a winner of the Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Awards for the number one communication coach in the world, and as the New York Times calls her, an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Clients include FedEx and Fidelity, Sony and Google, Marriott, Goodyear, Boeing, Yale University, and many more. She's written several books, including Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, How to Find Your Breakthrough Idea and Build a Following Around It. Well, Dory has a new book out called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. If you're ready for a little reinvention of your own, you've come to the right place. Our guest is here to help us out as we welcome Dory Clark and invite her to join us on mic. So, Dory, the big question is, why is everybody so frenetic and running out of time? I think I know the answer because I read your book, but I want to give you the opportunity to launch the first volley. What's going on in the world today that you see? Oh, Jordan, there are a lot of things going on. I think all of us can point to the tip of the iceberg problems. We all know when we see the meetings, the emails, the things that are keeping us busy. And that's true. That's certainly part of it. But additionally, it is also true that there are more subterranean currents that are impacting our busyness. One is that for a lot of us, frankly, and I know there have been times in my life where I've done this, Busyness can be a form of avoidance so that we don't have to ask difficult questions that can actually be kind of uncomfortable because we don't know the answer or we don't want to know the answer. And another element is that there's been a lot of interesting research out of Columbia University about the fact that essentially busyness in our modern society has become a signaling device of social status. Oh, I'm so busy basically means I'm so popular. I'm so in demand. (laughs) And giving that up can feel very challenging. The hardest working man in show business title I've gone after for many, many years. I finally learned my lesson that uh, that comes with a price. The book is called, as we said in the introduction, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. People do everything for the moment and everything for the day and maybe think a bit about tomorrow and maybe fret a little bit about next week, but they're not thinking big picture enough. And you'd think in a world where everything is at our fingertips, we'd be able to do that. It is It is pretty ironic, but there's also human nature mitigating against it. We are predisposed to be short-term thinkers. I mean, I think for all of us, uh, it's it's obvious that something now is a lot more appealing than something five years down the road or however long it is. And so we, we have to train ourselves it's like a, a muscle. Uh, we have to override some of the more primal circuits that we come installed with. Well, one of the things that you talk about is saying no, just say no, turning down one out of 10 invitations. And it's it's like um, eating healthy. If you start to eat healthy here and there, you, you develop a taste for healthier foods. Would you say the same thing applies when you get to say no for the first time? I, I think it's true. Uh, A lot of times the problem of how to thin out our schedule feels overwhelming because we assume that it means, oh, I'm going to have to say no to everything. And how can I possibly do it? Because there's this and there's this and there's this. And the truth is many of your obligations probably can't be changed. There are things you have to do. But it's also equally true that sometimes the, the difference between feeling busy in a good way and feeling completely overwhelmed may only be an hour or two of commitments per week. 
And so if we can make progress around the edges by getting just a little bit smarter about what we commit to, we can actually make a significant difference in the quality of life as we experience it. We get ourselves into trouble by essentially making every offer that, that we are extended an up or down vote. Oh, should I do this thing or should I not do this thing? First place we go is, oh, is there a hole in my calendar? Well, I guess I could do this. And so therefore, we often do do the thing, but we're missing the context. And there's a story I tell in the long game about what actually was kind of a difficult decision, but one that I feel good about in retrospect, which was being offered the chance to, to give a talk at a Caribbean island and getting a free vacation to get to, to do it. But ultimately, I decided to say no to that, even though for obvious reasons, there were a lot of appealing elements because I actually looked at my calendar and I realized I was traveling the week before for work. I was traveling the week after. And the idea of spending three weeks living out of a suitcase, I realized I was going to be miserable. I wasn't going to be able to enjoy it. And so I, I said no to be able to protect my sanity. And I think it was the right move. All the time, your body will give you the signals. You write about experiences having a bad cold or just being run down. And it's your body saying, wake up, not you, stupid. <laughs> That's me. Wake up, stupid, and, and pay attention. That's another part of this long game, you know, realizing that there's so much more to enjoy in life if you have your health. And, and people seem to be sacrificing their basic practical health for just getting more stuff done. It's, it's absolutely true. We make a lot of choices that if they were actually rationally presented to us, oh, would you like to make this sacrifice? Most people would say, no, that sounds terrible. That sounds horrifying. But we get on this slippery slope. There's a concept in ecology called shifting baseline syndrome. And it refers to things like endangered species, where we actually don't see the impact of the extinction because we're not looking back 200 years and saying, oh, there were however many million of the pigeons. We're looking back in our lifetime. We're looking back 20 years and we say, oh, well, you know, there's not that, that many less pigeons and we forget. And similarly, our health and the quality of our relationships oftentimes begin to slip because it's a very subtle process. And if we actually looked at it and saw, oh, okay, here's the 20 year arc. Here's, here's how this played out. We would often be horrified. Mm. We're talking with Dory Clark, and you're known as a, a business strategist, a business thinker, a, a leadership coach, all those great things. This book is really more about human nature, as you pointed out earlier. It's, it's really about who we are and, and if we really examine ourselves, which is what makes it so practical. I mean, the, the audience for this could be business, but it could also be students, teachers, trash collectors, <laughs> you name it. What kind of reaction are you getting so far? Yeah, thank you, Jordan. I, I I think it's true. I mean, I do come out of the business world, and so it's intended to be a book to look at our professional lives and, and our careers. But I think it would be a mistake, a serious mistake, if we only looked at our professional lives in isolation and didn't consider the other parts. Because as we are experiencing our lives, it's not like work is cordoned off from it, especially during the pandemic work and regular life, they became so intertwined. We almost can't can't tell the difference anymore. It's all just our life. And so the choices we make in one area inextricably are linked to and affect everything else we do. Mm. So I want to make sure that as best we can, we're making good choices. We're making choices that 10 years, 20 years from now, we will be thanking ourselves for making 
as compared to uh, feeling regretful. Um, but I, I do feel gratified about the response. We uh, spent a couple of weeks in the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, which was wonderful. So uh, it's been it's been really exciting and positive so far. In every uh, improvement program that people sign up for, there's that very important section on goal setting. You have a very interesting take on goal setting that I read in the in the book, and maybe you can explore that. What what's your position on setting goals for the long game? I feel free to to zero me in if there's a, a particular facet of it. But one element that I think is often perhaps a little counterintuitive around my approach to goal setting is actually I find it incredibly liberating. I think this is one of the best parts about long term goal setting is the fact that we don't have to know how we are going to achieve that goal. A lot of times I'll talk to people and they say, oh, well, you know, I'm not setting long-term goals because I, I just, uh, I don't know what I would, what I would do because I don't know how I would reach it, you know, whatever the 20-year goal is. And my whole point is, of course you don't know. Can, do you really think that the world in 20 years is not going to change? I think it's going to change so much that whatever plan we make today is probably going to be rendered moot very quickly because of shifting circumstances. All we need to do in terms of long-term goals, we don't have to limit ourselves to the things that we literally know how we can do. Feel free to think big because no one knows how the world is going to be in 20 years. Pick a goal, and then the only thing we have to figure out today is how can you take one step closer to get toward it. And there are people in our lives and in the in the world at large that we can look to who already have figured this out. I mean, you take a look at an Elon Musk, and, and he's a very uh, controversial character in some respects, but he's also a visionary. And people like him and, and those on our own local streets, uh, they are figuring this out or they've already figured this out. And look at the success of some of these people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that we often assume that we that we somehow have to invent it all or figure it all out. But I am a huge fan of f identifying, you know, what I'll call career mentors, where you can actually reverse engineer their biographies, reverse engineer their choices. And you might not necessarily literally choose to do the same thing that they do, but it is extraordinarily instructive to understand the steps that people took and to plot out their biography. Well, you know, what did they go to school for? How long did they work in this job? At what point did they make this move? And by understanding that, you can begin to see patterns and how they impacted things. And that information used to be hard to come by. Now it is the easiest thing in the world on the internet to be able to access someone's LinkedIn profile or their bio or a news story about them. So you can understand the choices they made and see how they might layer on top of yours. Mm. There's an important part of all this, and that's learning to be somewhat patient with yourself, with others around you, with the world as it's spinning. And I, I keep thinking about my driving habits. I'll just share this with you. Uh, I'm a, I've been driving forever. I mean, I've driven hundreds of thousands of miles in my lifetime and always, thank God, a safe driving record. But lately, lately, I'd say in the last five or six years, I uh, I take the easy route. I take the slow lane a lot of the times. Drives my wife crazy because she's still on you know rapid transit time. But I find that with that, it takes so much stress out of the day getting to someplace. 
that's been one little adjustment that I've made, and it's made a world of difference. And uh, I have not used this thing. You know what finger I'm holding up. I won't do it. <laughs> I haven't had to resort to that special use of uh, that digit. I I love that, Jordan. <laughs> and I, I think uh, I think you're, you're really on to something. There's a, a great story told by a gentleman that I profile in the long game named Derek Sivers, who is an entrepreneur and an author. And he, he told, I, I think, a really uh, telling anecdote about one day he was taking a, you know, bike rides in Santa Monica um, along the beach. And, for, you know, for a long time, he was thinking of biking as a form of exercise. And so he would bike as fast as he possibly could, you know, up and down the, the boardwalk. And usually it would take him about 45 minutes to complete the, the loop that he had created for himself. And, you know, he was doing that pushing hard, you know, sweating, stressing out. But, you know, yeah, he was getting in his exercise. And so one day he decided, you know what, I'm going to try something different today. I'm going to just ride for fun. I'm just going to see the sights and tool around and uh, and, you know, not not think of it as a big race. And so he did that. He had a great time. You know, he was taking in the breeze and the sea salt and seeing the kids play. And he got back to his house and he realized that his bike ride that day took 47 minutes. Sometimes the difference between stressing out and pushing yourself versus actually being able to enjoy life, literally it's only a couple of minutes of difference, but it makes all the difference psychologically. Why do I keep thinking the tortoise and the hare as we're talking about this? I mean, I, the old fables, Aesop and others, sort of got it right in the, in the millennia before the internet and all that. And that's always a crutch, isn't it, Dory, that people say, well, I, I've got all this communication. I have all of this information. I've got to deal with it. Um, and I've talked with numerous people about this issue of, of oversaturation. How do you advise people and even yourself to deal with what is the onslaught of digital power? It, it is absolutely an onslaught. I mean, certainly there are techniques that you can use. Um, you know, a simple one, of course, that that any of the productivity gurus would advise is to make sure that you're turning the notifications off so that your attention isn't constantly being pinged, so that mm. you're not constantly getting addicted to the dopamine hit, uh, but instead you're only going into social media when you choose to do so. You're making that conscious choice. But I, I think even more than that, it's a question of understanding how we use it in our lives. Um, one story that I, I share in the long game is about how I started a time tracking experiment because I, I really wanted to understand how I was spending my time. Like, what was the data? I knew what my impression was, but I, I wanted to know what the facts were. And I did a very meticulous month-long time tracking experiment where in 15-minute increments every day for a month, I would track down how I was using my time. And what I discovered, I mean, I'm not a huge social media user. Um, you know, I'm not somebody who's spending, you know, hours and hours going down the rabbit hole. But I noticed something really interesting, which is that my peak social media time uh, was between 10 and 11 at night. And when I saw it, you know, in black and white on the calendar, I thought, you know, why am I doing mm. that? And what I came to realize was, oh, that's the time of night when I'm too tired to work, but I'm still awake enough that I'm not going to go to sleep. And it was it was like junk food, basically. And once I realized that that was the pattern, that I'd get stuck scrolling before bed, I was able to intervene and correct it. And 
I actually replicated the study two years later and my social media time uh, had dramatically declined uh, during that period because I was aware of that small change. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, the phone now does that. It says you've been using on average six hours a day or something like that. All these devices also help to remind us what we're doing with them at the same time. A couple of other things while we have you, uh, Dory. One of them is the the idea, and it's not a new idea, of networking, but networking with the right people. And after two years nearly of self-isolation and forced isolation, uh, the idea of reaching out to people has become sort of uh, cool again. Um, but it's it's interesting how you framed it in that chapter that I read about um, the kind of people we want to hang with so that we, through osmosis, develop some of those good habits. Talk, talk a little bit of that. Uh, talk a little bit with me about that. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly there there have always been a small, you know, a, a small, sometimes not so small subset of people who really resist the idea of networking. And largely it's because the impression they have of networking, the connotation the word has for them is, oh, it's like a bunch of users that that want things from you. And so if that's what networking was, well, you know, obviously, you know, pretty much everybody would hate it if that was the case. But what I wanted to really get across is that that's actually bad networking. That's not networking in general. That is a mm. bad, uh, virulent variety of networking. Instead, I actually wanted to encourage people to, you know, of course, do more long-term networking, which I, I think, you know, just about anyone who's good at networking understands. Like, okay, you know, it's not about getting things from people. It's about making making meaningful friendships. But I think the piece that is often overlooked or misunderstood is what I call infinite horizon networking. And the way that I define it is that is networking with people who on the surface may have nothing in common with you. They have no utility and therefore they are often overlooked even by quote unquote good networkers because you know, maybe they don't live in your city. Maybe they're not part of your industry. You know, there's, there's not even a path to see what they could do for you, quote unquote. I mean, they could be, you know, you're an accountant and they're a comedian or whatever it is. But those can often be some of the most transformative relationships because it genuinely does bring you outside your regular zone yeah. of information and yeah. connections. They can present you with new ideas, new ways of seeing the world, new opportunities, new, you know, entree into new social networks. And that's how you actually shake up your life in a meaningful way. I love it. Shake up your life. Uh, uh think out of the box with out of the box people. And it it does make a difference. I, you and I are people who probably meet a variety of folks on a daily basis from all walks of life. And that's one of the joys of doing it. I have one more uh, important question or comment from you that I'd love to gather. And that is uh, the, the idea of rethinking what failure means. We're living in a culture now, particularly with our political class on all sides, where no one admits to failure no one really um, – they apologize if if they offended you. That's about as far as it goes. But um, I'm thinking of some of the great uh, thinkers and writers and statesmen and women of the past who have been honest with themselves and with others. And they're regarded with more uh, respect and I think they have a better sense of self. Talk with us again about failure in the modern era and what it really means and why we should really face it. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things operating here, Jordan. 
The first is, of course, you're absolutely right. Uh, in our contemporary political discourse, especially, people often want to uh, hide from responsibility, which is uh, not really the the mark of a leader and uh, does not inspire a lot of confidence. But that being said, I think actually so often in our culture, you know, for regular people, we are often so afraid of failure that, number one, we hesitate to try new things in the first place, which I think is unfortunate and a pernicious pattern. And number two, I think sometimes we are too quick to call something a failure when a fa failure to me implies a definitive outcome. And it can actually take quite a while for the definitive outcome to manifest itself. I, I think that what we often see is um, something doesn't work. A tactic doesn't work. And people say, oh, well, you know, I failed. Oh, my God, I failed. Well, no, that that technique failed. It doesn't mean your aspiration is never going to happen. It doesn't mean that you're never going to accomplish the goal that you want. It means that, OK, the door was closed. You have to climb in a window. And, you know, as just one example, when I when I finished my master's degree, I applied to get a doctorate and I wanted to become a university professor. I got turned down by every single school I applied to. It seemed like, okay, you're not going to be a university professor. You could call that a failure. And yet within three years, I was teaching at a university because I had found another way in by becoming an adjunct professor based on the subsequent career that I had landed in as a journalist. And today I've been teaching for close to nine years for a very good business school, the Duke University Fuqua School mm. of Business. I don't have a PhD still. I don't even have an MBA, but I managed to to do it through an alternate route and it's worked. So oh, was it a failure that I didn't get into the doctoral programs? I'd say it was a setback, but I I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a failure because to me that actually mm. implies more about you. It, it implies that you're giving up. And I think it's important for us not to give up. Just look at examples through history, uh, Thomas Edison and how many failed experiments and failed inventions and uh, the NASA space program in one decade, or as Kennedy said, decad, uh, we went to the moon and uh, pulled off an amazing miracle. And even in this current generation, the, the development of vaccines to slow down and stop the spread of a dangerous, horrific disease. Uh, so many great examples uh, about yourself. You share a lot. And I have one more uh, fun question. It's called The Long Game, and the cover art is terrific. It looks like uh, Bill Belichick's whiteboard. Are you a football fan by any chance, or is it just a nice metaphor that you wanted to use? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice metaphor. <laughs> it was, I, cannot take, uh, I cannot take credit. It was the, uh, the, the smart folks at, uh, at my publisher, uh, Harvard Business Review Press, that came up with uh, all the X's and O's. They must have borrowed it from the Harvard-Yale game of a few years ago. It's beautiful. I think that's what it was. Thank you, Jordan. Well, Dory, congratulations. Uh, not your first book and not your last by any stretch because you're going for the long game. Uh, so nice to have you on the podcast and, uh, and get to know you a little bit off the air as well. And I wish you the very, very best with this. Thank you so much. A wonderful guest whose website is her name, Dory Clark, D-O-R-I-E Clark, C-L-A-R-K.com, author of many bestsellers, including her latest book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. 
Thank you, as always, to my publisher, Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and Chart Productions, where we produce the podcast here in Boston. And, of course, as always, to you in the audience worldwide. Appreciate it so much when you add your reviews and ratings, and you get friends to subscribe and download. So, until next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.